there's um, a special place, I would say, in everyone's life and memory and psyche for moments of humiliation. Hands up if you can remember a time when you were humiliated. And it's as if it's right there. It's as if it happened yesterday, right? Yeah. As a, it's these moments where either we're caught doing something stupid or embarrassing or a secret gets out or when a personal weakness is exposed for everyone to see. Now, as a recovering stutterer, I have my fair share of excruciating stories that give me chills, not in a good way. I've not got chills I'm multiplying. I'm talking chills in a bad way, uh, just as I think of them. Like when I was at primary school, uh, part of the early morning roll call was to tell the teacher in Welsh whether we were eating school-provided lunches or whether we were bringing our own. And uh, I ate sandwiches from home, and so the phrase I'd have to say every morning was, what, see, I'm, just the memory is causing me to stumble. I, I, I get you those chills. But the phrase I'd have to say every morning was, brechdanai osgwelechenda, okay? Everyone together, one, two, three. Brechdanai osgwelechenda. <laughs> And that meant sandwiches, please, right? And uh, only my stuttering lips couldn't handle the B of brechdanai. So to avoid stuttering every single day, I'd have to steer clear of this horrible word by pretending that I was thinking about it. Hmm, what am I eating for lunch today? I'm not too sure. And then after pretending I was thinking about it, because, you know, I didn't have a lot to think about because it was the same thing every day, but I pretend I was thinking about it. And then I do this run-in, which is kind of like a stammerer's or stutterer's trick, meaning I'd say a bunch of unnecessary words leading into my announcement of sandwiches, please. Uh, It was the only way I could say it. And my run-in phrase, it was three specific words. I'd say, um, um, Miss. Um, um, miss. Okay? Miss is what we called our female teachers. Male teachers are called sir. Female teachers are called miss. And uh, so um meant, let me think, I'm not sure. And then second um meant, I'm still considering what my answer is. And uh, then miss, because miss is a nice, soft M sound that was the launch pad for the dreaded brechdanai oskorchana. So altogether, when my teacher called my name, I would say, um, um, miss every single day and every single day I felt like an idiot I felt like everyone's eyes are on me because no one's fooled you know you don't have to think about it that much Dan right I felt humiliated so that's just one of my many stories of uh, stuttering related humiliation I also have uh, a whole ream of non-stuttering related humiliation stories which I'd be happy to share with you afterwards as well but um, but The good news is that God is not into humiliating us, right? Uh, He's not into humiliating us at all. He's not interested in humiliating us, but he's very, very interested in humbling us. And humbling and humiliating are two very different things. There's this website called happyteachermama.com, and she explains on this website that... um, the difference between humiliation and humbling. And she says, humiliation is to cause a painful loss of pride, self-respect, or dignity. Uh, In contrast, humility means a modest opinion of one's own importance. 
Humiliation versus humility. Or as James chapter 4 verse 6 says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Shows favour to the humble. So God's end goal for each and every one of us, um, if we're proud, then his goal of opposing us in our pride is to humble us so that we can then have a modest opinion of ourselves so that then God can in turn show us favour, show us grace. And in our account today of God's intervention, we're in this series of, of, of God's intervention, we will see the extent that God will go to to humble a proud person so that he can then show this formerly proud, now humbled person his grace and favour. And I know that there are people within earshot of me right now who God is in the process of humbling so that he can then show grace to them afterwards. So what we will do is we'll quickly jump to the end of our passage today so that we can see the goal that God has in mind in bringing about the humbling of our key character, a military general called Naaman. So 2 Kings chapter 5, verse 14, this is the end of the passage, says this. So he went down and dipped himself in the Jordan seven times as the man of God had told him, and his flesh was restored and became like that of a young boy. 2 Kings chapter 5, so if you want to find that on your phones or or in your Bible, that's where we're um, hanging out today. So as God humbles us, our innocence is restored. Uh, Like Naaman, the skin of our heart, as it were, becomes clean and smooth like that of a child. Our innocence is restored. Last week we saw how Jesus, how God used the childlike Samaritans, right, to wage war against the kingdom of Satan. Uh, And in fact, what we've been learning over the last week, And this week as well is that God's kingdom is based on the principle that only childlike people can can immigrate into God's kingdom. If you're not childlike, the immigration process cannot even start for you. Jesus says this in uh, Matthew chapter 18 verse 3, Truly I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. The immigration process will not even start. You will be refused entry. And so becoming a child in innocence and faith and trust is a prerequisite to immigrating into God's kingdom. There is no room in God's kingdom for the proud you will be turned away at the border. Revelation 3.17 says this, you say I am rich, I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing, right? How much of our social media, um, and I'm a strong social media user, as many of you who know me know, but so much of our social media says, "I, I, I have acquired wealth, I am rich, I do not need a thing, but... As, as, uh, as this passage carries on, Revelation 3. But you do not realize that you are wretched, that you are pitiful, that you are poor, that you are blind and naked. And so Jesus wants us to realize our lack so that he can in turn give us his true wealth. So our story this morning, like I said, ends with Naaman's flesh being restored and becoming like that of a young boy. But our story starts with Naaman in a very different 
place. 2 Kings chapter 5 verse 1 says this, Now Naaman was commander of the army of the king of Aram. He was a great man in the, in the sight of his master and highly regarded because through him the Lord had given victory to Aram. He was a valiant soldier, but he had leprosy. So to help us understand Naaman, I'm going to give him a nickname. And the nickname I'm going to give Naaman is this, the powerless powerful. Everyone say that, the powerless powerful. So let's start with this idea that he is powerful, right? Well, verse 1 outlines the way that Naaman is powerful, right? He's the commander of the army of the king of Aram, which is another name for Syria. Uh, He's a great man in the eyes of the king. He's highly regarded, and he was used of God himself to bring victory to Aram or to Syria. So, um, and he's listed as a valiant soldier. So he's a guy that if he walked into the room, he would command the attention of everyone in any room that he walked into. He's powerful, he's confident, he's strong, he's tall, he's muscular, he's he's accomplished, he's brave, he's powerful, but he had leprosy. And this is one part of his life over which he had no control whatsoever. In other words, He was powerless. He's the powerless powerful. Now, just to explain here, leprosy here doesn't necessarily mean leprosy as we know it. Actual leprosy is called Hansen's disease. uh, And what Naaman is suffering from is probably something rather different from Hansen's disease. Maybe it was something like psoriasis. But even if it is psoriasis. This still would mean, according to the website WebMD, that Naaman had under his hot, sweaty armor, um, he had patches of red inflamed skin with loose silver-colored scales. He had itchy, painful skin uh, that, that, that cracked and bled. He had issues maybe with his fingernails, maybe toenails as well. Maybe he had, he had scaly plaques under his scalp, under his, hel- uh, under his helmet as he sweat in the hot sun. It was just itchy, horrible, and maybe he even had achy, swollen joints. So for all his accomplishments and his high standing, underneath his armor was this scaly, sore skin that afflicted him day and night. Hands up if you're feeling itchy right now. (laughs) Naaman was the powerless powerful. Now, let's contrast Naaman with someone else in this story who's the complete opposite. Someone who I'm going to refer to as the empowered powerless. So let's say that together. The empowered powerless. Naaman is the powerless powerful, and this next person is the empowered powerless. Verse 2 says this, uh, now now bands of raiders had, um, now bands of raiders from Aram had gone out and had taken captive a young girl from, from Israel, and she served Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, if only my master would see the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. 
Naaman is everything that this little girl is not. She is female, she's young, and she's a slave who's been taken from her home and her family. Everything in that culture counts against her. She's female, she's young, and she's a slave. She's in forced servitude, and interestingly, she doesn't even have a name. She's just called a little girl. She is powerless. She is uh, the strongest example of of powerlessness that you could have in the ancient Near East. And yet she had agency. Meaning the moment that she chooses to talk to her mistress about this prophet in Samaria, um, this affects the very life of her master and it actually strengthens, it actually results in strengthened international relations between her home country of Israel and her slave country of Aram. This little girl has agency. It would have been too easy for this girl to say absolutely nothing as she was there maybe combing her mistress's hair. Or to rejoice in the shame and the discomfort of her mistress's husband. It would have been easy to do that. And yet she tells her mistress of this prophet in Samaria and the knock-on effect of this empowerment and this agency of this nameless little girl is nothing short of staggering. 2 Kings 5 verse 4 says this, Naaman went to his master and told him what the girl from Israel had said. By all means go, the king of Aram replied. I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So Naaman left, taking with him 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, and 10 sets of clothing. The letter that he took to the king of Israel read, With this letter I am sending my servant Naaman to you, so that you may cure him of his leprosy. Right, agency. That little thing that she said had a, had a knock-on effect. Now, let's have a brief reality sh- uh, check here, right? We, we read about 10 talents of silver and 6,000 shekels of gold, and we have no idea what that means. You, know, you, you, you assume it was a lot. But to put it in perspective, the IVP background commentary uh, tells us that what we're looking at is 750 pounds in weight of silver and about 150 pounds in weight of gold plus 10 snappy outfits. This is a big, big, big gift. Now, a couple of weeks ago, I don't know if you remember this, but... Uh, In the news, there was a big story that was all about Kim Kardashian wearing Marilyn Monroe's happy birthday, Mr. President, dress uh, to the Oscars. And it seemed that she kind of ruined it. And people aren't very happy with her, but they're less happy with Ripley's Believe It or Not, who loaned the dress to her. And the reason people aren't happy is because this was a one-of-a-kind outfit. It's, it's an historical outfit, and it cost Ripley's 4.8 million US. This is a big deal for you to wear out once and for, you know, the jewels are falling off and there's like rips in the seams and all this kind of thing, right? It's a big deal. But that's nothing compared to the gift that the king of Aram had for the king of Israel. In today's money... The gold and the silver and the ten outfits uh, would be worth somewhere around three quarters of a billion U.S. Three quarters of a billion U.S. This is an unbelievable gift. 
But it's not just a gift, it's a gift with strings, or at least that's what the king of Israel, because verse 7 says, as soon as the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his robes and said, am I God? Can I kill and bring back to life? Right? He's really distraught at this gift. Right? But um, just as a brief sidebar, uh, the writer of Second Kings, at this moment, he's kind of nudging his audience Right? He's, he's um, sort of preparing us for how the situation's going to get resolved because only God can kill and only God can bring back to life. Verse 7, why does this fellow, the king of Aram, send someone to me to be cured of his leprosy? See how he's trying to pick a quarrel with me. And so if the king of Israel succeeds, the gain for him is three quarters of a billion but the cost of failure, at least in the eyes of the king of Israel, who was most likely King Joram, was war. You see, at this time, Aram, or Syria, was in a time of peace with Israel. But they had this kind of on-off relationship. Uh, um, and so even in the times of peace, this peace was a shaky peace. It was unsettled. And here King Joram is assuming that, that King Ben-Hadad... Uh, the king of Aram is just looking for an excuse to start a fight. And how often do we do exactly what King Joram is doing, right? We observe outward behavior and we draw conclusions about inner motivation. And I think that this is a timely word of caution for all of us not to too quickly jump to conclusions. Instead, as my boss on the Logos Hope always told me, always ask what's one more piece of information I need to know about this situation before drawing a conclusion. What's one more piece of information that I need to know about this situation before drawing a conclusion? So as, as we can see, this whole narrative is amping up. We, we have this powerless uh, powerful army general. We also have this empowered, powerless slave girl. And this whole story is set against the backdrop of uneasy international relations. And so the question is, as we read this, or, or the question that we're led to ask is, what is the nature of true power? What is the nature of true power? What does true influence actually mean? Who in our story today is the truly powerful? And so as we wrestle with this question, we can apply it to our own lives and our own society. Who are the truly powerful? Is it the Bill Gates and the Jeff Bezos and the Mark Zuckerbergs and the Elon Musks and the Oprah Winfrey's? And probably the answer is yes. However, now and again, we get a sense that maybe there is another way. For example, last week, a jobless Italian immigrant from the country of Senegal became the king of TikTok. Big deal. He displaced Charlie D'Amelio as the most followed TikToker. Hands up if you are aware of this. Okay, there we go. You see the crowd that I move with? Yeah. So, so, she, so she, being uh, Charlie, the erstwhile queen of the TikTok, she has 143.1 million followers, but now this man, his name's Kabi Lame, has 144.9 million followers. And he's a jobless Senegalese immigrant 
in Italy. He's a nobody, but he's a nobody who has agency, just like this unnamed slave girl in 2 Kings chapter 5. So with all that being said, how do we understand the power dynamics of 2 Kings 5? Well, one way to interpret the power dynamics in this chapter is like this. The slave girl submits to Naaman's wife, her owner, who then submits to Naaman, who then submits to the king of Aram, who in turn submits to the king of Israel, right? Aram needed Israel's help to heal Naaman. This is a clear hierarchy. This makes sense. But when it comes to Naaman's healing, uh, the power dynamics are actually turned on their head. Naaman submits to his wife, who submits to the slave girl, because the slave girl holds the information to Naaman's healing. And this girl only has this information because she knows about Elisha. And so the girl has submitted herself to Elisha and his reputation. And then, of course, Elisha submits himself to Yahweh. So which is the more accurate view of what's going on here in terms of power? Is it slave girl, wife, Naaman, you know, king of Aram, and then king of Israel? Or might it be actually Naaman, wife, slave girl, Elisha, Yahweh. All this to say, don't believe everything that you read in Forbes or Maclean's or social media, because true power, kingdom power, often lies in a very different place than where we might look, somewhere maybe we'd never think of looking. And this mindset is uh, reflected in, in last week's scripture, Luke 10, 17. The 72 re- returned with joy and said, Lord, even the demon submits to your name. He replied, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I've given you authority tr- to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. However, do not rejoice that the spirit submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven at that time. Jesus, full of joy, through the Holy Spirit said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you've hidden these things from who? From the wise and the learned and revealed them to who? To little children. Yes, Father, for this is what you were pleased to do. This are power dynamics in God's kingdom. Okay, back to our passage, 2 Kings 5 verse 8. When Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his robes, he sent him this message. Why have you torn your robes? Um, Have the man come to me and he will know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman went with his horses and his chariots, again a power play, and he stopped at the door of Elisha's house. Elisha sent a messenger to him, uh, go wash yourself seven times in the Jordan and your flesh will be restored and you will be cleansed. But Naaman went away angry and said, I thought that he would surely come out you know to me okay and here here we see a power shift right that the prophet didn't even have the courtesy to meet to meet this powerful general face to face um instead he just sent out a servant to him and and stand and call on the name of his lord uh wave his hand over the spot okay this is how naaman thinks he he will be healed someone will call on the name of god he'll wave his hand over the spot and cure me of my leprosy verse 12 are not abana and farpa the the rivers are of Damascus actually better than all the waters of Israel couldn't I have washed in them and be cleansed so he turned off or or he turned and went off in in a rage 
And what we see in this little section of our scripture is the gospel in a nutshell, right? It's like God is placing these clues back in 2 Kings chapter 5 that will then be fulfilled by Jesus in the gospel. What I mean by that is that when the average person is told that there is only one way to be healed by God from our sin problem, and it's through faith in Jesus Christ, and we can do nothing at all to help ourselves, then just like Naaman, we scoff and we say, surely there must be another way. Surely I don't need to lower myself to this offensive ideology that Jesus came and died for me so that my relationship with God can be restored. We think that there must be another way. And when we say this, what we're saying to God is, I do want you to save me, but I also want to have a part in it. I want you to save me on my terms. In other words, it's a power struggle. And so for Naaman, he imagines some hand-waving and some impressive prayers. That's what salvation looked like for him. And in our meeting this week, uh, yeah, Pastor Nathan, he, he pointed out something to me. He said that God could have healed Naaman like this. It was in God's power to heal him with some hand-waving and some words. How, how do we know this? Because Jesus did exactly this in Luke chapter 5, verse 12. While Jesus was in one of the towns, a man came to him who was covered with leprosy. When he saw Jesus, he fell with his face to the ground and he begged him, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. Jesus reached out his hand. You know, a little bit of hand-waving there. He touched him. I am willing, he said. He prayed. He said something. He said, be clean, and immediately the leprosy left him. So, so Jesus waved his hands and he spoke, and this man was healed. But the thing is, and Nathan pointed this out to me, that the leper in Luke chapter 5, he didn't need humbling. He was already face down on the ground. But Naaman, he was sat on his horse with his entourage all around him. He needed humbling. He needed humbling, remember, so that God could then show him favor. And so Elisha tells his servant, you know, to tell this man to wash seven times in the dirty Jordan. And Naaman goes off in a huff. Verse 13. Naaman's servants went to him and said, my father, if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more than when he tells you wash and be cleansed? So he went down and dipped himself in the Jordan seven times as the man of God had told him. And his flesh was restored and became like that of a young boy. So here we have our story neatly tied up in a bow through faith and through obedience and through this kind of humbling, maybe prototype of what later would be called baptism. Naaman is saved. He's healed. James 4 verse 6, God opposes the proud. He opposes the proud, but he shows favor to the humble. And now in his humility, Naaman was ready to receive God's favor. And this is how things work in God's kingdom, right? In the kingdom of Jesus, the powerless slave girl is empowered to speak into one powerful man's powerlessness. She was used to highlight that regardless of Naaman's worldly accolades and achievements, he was totally at the mercy of, of the God of this little anonymous slave girl. And just like Jesus used the outcast Samaritans to spread the news of his coming, like we heard last week, and just like God use, uses the bold words of a nameless slave girl to intervene uh, in the hopelessness of one man's life, so God uses people like you 
with just the right word at just the right time to spark a series of circumstances that can literally lead to the rebirth of a lost, lost soul or the humbling of a proud mind. And what we learn through Naaman's example is that we should not assume that we know where power lies. You know, the fact that it's a little girl who has agency, it's a plot twist that endures and it's told over and over and over again because it's novel and it's exciting. And in fact, in Luke chapter 4, when Jesus is trying to reset uh, the power balance in his hometown, Jesus retells the story of Naaman. But now the plot twist isn't about this little girl. The plot twist is about Naaman himself. Luke 4.27, Jesus says, And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet. Right? You would assume that if there's lots of people in Jesus' uh, own region that they would be healed. And yet what Jesus says is, Yet not one of them was cleansed. Only Naaman the Syrian. And because of these fighting words of Jesus that God healed a Syrian instead of all of the Israelites who needed healing, because of these words, people's own people, or Jesus' own people from his own hometown tried to kill him. So friends, what we learn from Naaman is that when God in his grace exposes the lie that so many of us hold on to, that we are in control. We can respond in one of two ways. Number one, we submit to Jesus and we trust him with our sin problem by obeying him in faith, just like Naaman did. Or we reject Jesus and we try to kill him and his influence in our lives, just like the people in Nazareth did in Luke 4. But because of the grace of God and the faithful agency of this anonymous little slave girl and the humble obedience of Naaman, even though it took him a while to get there, the scripture ends with verse 14, 2 Kings 5:14. So he went down, he dipped himself in the Jordan seven times as the man of God had told him and his flesh was restored and became clean like that of a young boy. Imagine what that felt like. This powerful general ended up becoming like a young boy just like the young girl who God used to change his life Naaman's journey to hope started with a young girl and it ended with a young boy and God's goal Jesus's goal Cornerstone's goal is to see more and more people in North Gore getting cleansed of their pride, cleansed of their self-sufficiency, cleansed of trying to fix their sin problem themselves, and to become like little children who sit on the knee of Almighty God, young girls and young boys, free of this itchy, inflamed, all-encompassing effects of sin through being born again into innocence and newness of life. Matthew 18, verse 3. Truly I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven.